Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us this abundant life that you promised through your Son, Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Give us that life today. And we ask that you'd give us light in all the ways that we still walk in darkness. You would shine your light through the face of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And this is, so to speak, the last uh, Sunday of summer uh, where we'll still have an all-age service. Next week, children's uh, uh, ministry will be back. Uh, children's church will be back uh, and we'll be releasing the kids. But uh, for one last Sunday today, we're going to all be together here. Um, and in our gospel lesson uh, from John 8, we learned that Jesus is the light of the world. Without Jesus we would be walking in total darkness. Jesus is the ultimate light. Can you turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is the ultimate light? All right, now, in addition to Jesus, there are three other lights that the Bible clearly talks about. So I'm going to need my three volunteers to come up. I asked uh, three volunteers from the Kogan family. Um, I ask them especially because the Kogans are bright beams of light. Um, so that's for him. Yeah. All right. All right. So um, they will represent the three other lights that Jesus created. And, um, and you'll notice that they're all facing Jesus, right? They're all facing the processional cross here. And we're going to see what happens when they're no longer facing Jesus. Okay. So um, the first among the created lights is the heavenly light. So you see Simon over here, uh, like the sun, the moon, and the stars. These are all lights that God created on the fourth day. Uh, in Genesis 1, verses 14 through 15, God says, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. Now, are these lights important? The sun, the stars, and the moon, are these lights important? Yes. yes. Without them, there would be literally no life on the earth. But are they the ultimate light? No. Jesus is the ultimate light. Did you ever notice in Genesis 1 that God actually creates light on what day? The first day. So God created light before he even created the sun and moon and stars. And part of what that communicates is that God doesn't need them. Okay, so who really needs who? Does the sun need Jesus or does Jesus need the sun? Right, the, the sun and the moon and the stars, they need Jesus to uphold their existence by the word of his power. And he doesn't even need their light. In fact, in the last book of the Bible, so first chapter of the Bible, God creates light before the sun, moon, and the stars. Second to last chapter in the Bible, Revelation chapter 21, it says that there won't be any more sun, but there will still be light in the, in the new Jerusalem. Who will be the lamp of the new Jerusalem? Jesus, the ultimate light. Okay, so um, now let's see 
what happens. We already said that the sun, moon, and stars, they need Jesus. Jesus doesn't need them. Let's see what happens when Simon, who represents the sun, the stars, and the moon, turns his back on Jesus. Look at this. They don't even exist anymore. There's nothing. No sun, no moon, no stars, nothing. All right. Now let's talk about the second light, Cade here, uh, uh, which is the Bible. The Bible is one of the things described as light in the Bible, right? So Psalm 119 says, God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Now, I'm asking this, kid, uh, this question to both kids and adults. Um, in what way is the Bible like light? In what way is it like a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path? Does anyone have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it guides us, right? We need light to guide us. How, what else? What else? Any other ideas? Yeah, that's right. It illuminates flaws. It keeps us from stumbling, right? What's timeless? Yeah, okay, okay, yeah. The, yeah, the, the truth in the Bible is, is definitely timeless, right? Um, okay, so, um, so the Bible is super important for God's purposes, right? But here's the question again. Does the Bible need Jesus or does Jesus need the Bible? Right, the, the Bible needs Jesus, right? Uh, the reason why the Bible can teach us about goodness is because Jesus is good in his very nature, and he's revealed his goodness through the word of God, through the Bible, right? The reason why the Bible can teach us the truth about God infallibly is because God knows the truth about himself, and he's revealed it to us through the pages of the Bible. That's why we worship Jesus and we don't worship the Bible, right? So um, without Jesus, and let's have Cade turn around. Look, without Jesus, there would be no Bible. There would still be goodness. There would still be love and truth in God himself. But without Jesus, who's the eternal word of God, there would be no written word of God. He's the one that inspired it, and it flows from his goodness. Amen? All right, so number three. There's a third light that Jesus created, and that is God's people. The church is very fitting to have these Kogan kids up here because they're bright beams of light. Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew chapter 5, what does he say? You are the light of the world. What did he say about himself here in John 8? I am the light of the world. Hold on a second. Now notice that Jesus says the same thing about his disciples as he says about himself so what's the difference here well the difference is that god's people don't have their own light god's people's light comes from jesus we reflect the light of jesus god's people are like the moon does the moon have its own light no the moon reflects the light of the sun to the earth right but if, if the moon didn't have the sun, it wouldn't be able to reflect any light, right? And so what happens if God's people turn their back on Jesus? Let's see, Carwin. Darkness. 
there would be no more light. So we see it's the same for all three created lights, the heavenly lights, the light of the Bible, and the light of God's people. They all depend on Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate light. Turn to your neighbor and say, Jesus is the ultimate light. All right, so let's have these three lights turn back to the ultimate light. Look at this. And now they can shine just as Jesus intended them to. They can reflect the light that Jesus has given them. All right, let's have a hand for the Kogans. And they could have a seat. Now, the setting, um, will you guys um, please grab a, uh, a Bible and turn to John 8, verses 12 through 30. It's on page 894 of your pew Bible. 894. So um, the setting of this passage where Jesus says, I'm the light of the world, is, uh, is the Feast of Tabernacles. And that's why Jesus is in Jerusalem at all. The feast was in, uh, attended by Jewish pilgrims from all over the diaspora, from all over where the Jewish people had spread out from the Holy Land. And it was a particularly joyous and it was a very image-rich celebration. For example, the Feast of the Tabernacles included uh, a lamp lighting ceremony every evening in the court of the women. And it said that the lamps were so huge, so huge that once ignited, they lit up every court in the entire temple. So they were sort of like ancient floodlights, okay? Um, now, these lamps represented the presence of God in the pillar of fire while God's people were wandering in the wilderness after the exodus. And so at their lighting, because they represented the presence of God, all of God's people in Jerusalem would party. And some people would party all night because there ain't no party like a Holy Ghost party. <laughs> all right. All right. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, and it's, it's into this setting while the lamps were still blazing, guys, that Jesus proclaimed, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In other words, Jesus is declaring to the Jewish pilgrims in dramatic fashion, that he's the fulfillment of everything that their feast represents. In the midst of their elaborate celebration. And, and this isn't actually the first time that Jesus has made such a claim. Actually, just a half a chapter ago, uh, in this same feast, there's this water ritual going on. And Jesus declared, well, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Right? John 7, 37. Now, this water ritual involved the temple priests going to the pool of Siloam and drawing some water, and then they would come back to the altar, and on the last day of the feast, they would actually process around the altar seven times, and they, they would dump out the water as a libation, as an offering to the Lord, right? And it's in that context, while all that's going on, that Jesus says, whoever believes in me, out of his hearts will flow rivers, of living water. I got a river of life flowing out of me. Makes the lame to walk and the blind to see. Where does that water come from? It comes from believing in Jesus. In other words, all their liturgy pointed to him. 
all their fountains were in him. All their lamps represented him and all their festal joy was about him. Just as surely as the church and the sacraments and all our liturgy and rituals point backward and upward to Jesus, all the Jewish feasts pointed forward to Jesus. Amen? So we see that Jesus who always had a sense of spiritual timing, didn't he? He seized upon the perfect moment to issue this next of his great I am statements. I am, in Greek, ego eimi, I am the light of the world. Thus identifying himself once again with the name that Yahweh gave to Moses at the burning bush, I am who I am. So who is the pillar of fire? Jesus is the pillar of fire. Now, this is Jesus' teaching style. So what we've been doing here in the children's all ages messages, this is kind of more how Jesus taught in a lot of ways, wasn't it, right? Um, The word made flesh has a habit of self-revelation. And in revealing himself, he simultaneously claims to show forth a perfect revelation of God the Father. As he puts it in verse 19, If you knew me, you would know the Father also. To know Jesus is to know the Father. Now, what are we to make of such audacious claims here? Jesus interpreted the most monotheistic festivals in the world as as pointing to himself. And he told the crowds, this is all about me. Now, this is either, guys, listen, this is either self-referential lunacy, right? Or the most blasphemous and, and somehow also the most like believable, the most convincing religious lie in the history of the human race. Or else Jesus is who he said he is. There's no fourth option here. Do you believe that Jesus is who he said he is. Do you believe that he's none other than God, the great I am? I tell you what, I'm so naturally skeptical, I simply could not believe such a ludicrous thing. I couldn't accept it, except that it comes from the mouth, does it not, of the most humble the most compassionate, the most sane, and in the words of Russell Moore, the least caffeinated religious figure in human history. I mean, who else but Jesus could have said such things and actually been believed by monotheistic crowds? And what's more, how many hundreds of millions of people in the world today and down through history can testify that, as the scriptures has said, Out of our hearts flow rivers of living water ever since I turned to Jesus Christ. This is the good news, brothers and sisters. Amen. Can I get a witness this morning? But here's, here's the flip side, guys. All right. Here's the flip side to the good news. Because the presence of a Savior points to our need for a Savior. It doesn't make sense that Jesus would come with this heavenly cure unless we admit that the earth has a disease. 
And that disease, brothers and sisters, is sin. That's the problem. Sin. That's what's in our heart. Sin. That's why there's wars. Sin. That's why there's racism. Sin. That's why there's rape. Sin. That's why there's lust. Sin. That is our problem. That's the disease we have. Look with me at verse 23. Jesus said to them, you are from below. In other words, we're from the, we're from the two-dimensional world, so to speak. But Jesus says, I'm from above, from the third dimension. He's incarnate. He took on flesh and time and space, but he's from the realm of eternity, from above. Jesus continues, you are of this world. I am not of this world. And then in verse 24, he warns us, about the universal disease. I told you that you would die in your sins. For unless you believe that I am he, again, the Greek phrase is ego eimi, so it could be translated, unless you believe that I am, unless you believe Jesus is the great I am, you will die in your sins. Now, what's the connection between believing in the divinity of Jesus and avoiding eternal death? Well, Jesus, he's the great physician, and he comes to earth to offer the heavenly vaccination, a way to be healed from sin. But he doesn't just stick us with the vaccination unwittingly. We have to receive. We have to believe. For God did not send his son in the world to condemn the world, but in order to save the world through him. John 3, 17 Guys, what, 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 what Jesus is trying to say is, this isn't the bad news. This is the good news. The world stood condemned already. The world was already infected. And the Father sent the cure. Does this make sense? I hope it does. Because this is the gospel, guys. And it's the most important message in the history of the world on the lips of the most important figure in the history of the world. So in order to be sure that Jesus is being clear, he uses a, another analogy from the Old Testament. In verse 28, Jesus says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, which is his favorite way of referring to himself, in other words, when you've lifted him up on the cross, then you will know that I am. Egoing me, there's a mysterious sense in which the cross is going to reveal Jesus's identity. Now, Jesus had already said something like this back in John 3, verses 14 and 15. He says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, the image that Jesus is referring to is, of course, the image we just heard read to us from our Old Testament reading from Numbers 21. So turn to page 129 in your pew Bible. Kids, turn with me there, there with us too. Try to follow along. Now, Numbers 21, in context, God had freed the Israelites from their bondage under Pharaoh in Egypt, making a way for them to escape through the miraculous parting of the Red Sea. But because of their sin, the Israelites were consigned to wander in the wilderness for 40 years before entering the promised land. But even so, God is gracious. He's gracious to them along the way. He leads them with his own presence. He provides water from a rock and manna from heaven to satisfy their needs. 
But we find in this passage that Israel still had complaints. We're not so different from them. Look down with me at verse 5. It says, And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food, there's no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Now, an observant reader might ask, how can it be true that they had no food, and at the same time, they loathe this worthless food? But I digress. So the Lord responds in wrath in verse 6. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people, uh, many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the serpents from us. Now, at this point, if you're like me, you might have thought, these snake-bitten Israelites are dead meat, no matter what they say. I mean, how can somebody complain this much? How can somebody turn their back on God this much? But this passage illustrates a very important spiritual principle, guys, which is that God never rejects those who sincerely turn to him. Never. Never. You can search the whole Bible, search every page. Anyone who turns to God and repents and believes in him will be received. Have you ever done something? Maybe some of you guys today are coming in. You're so deeply ashamed that you're afraid to even go to God. Afraid that he won't receive you. And the Lord Jesus Christ would tell you, fear not, even though you may be the worst of sinners, God always has mercy on those who repent. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind, but now I see. Who could write such words except a man who knew both the depths of sin and the heights of God's mercy? The author of this great hymn, John Newton, was truly a wretch. I mean, he was, a, he was formerly the captain of a slave ship, but after meeting Christ, Newton became an Anglican priest and an abolitionist, working tirelessly to end this slave trade. And so Newton, even in his own life, became a living icon that the mercy of God can transform even the worst of sinners. And even in this story, in Numbers 21, let's look back down there, we find that God provides a cure. Verse 7 continues. So Moses, who's a kind of Christ figure, he's a type of Christ in this passage, prayed for the people. He's interceding for them. And the Lord said to Moses... Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So all the Israelites had to do was look at this bronze serpent, look at this symbol of their death and judgment, as strange as that seems, and they would live. So how does this relate to Jesus? All right, I'm about to do a victory lap in this church. <laughs> Let me show you, okay? I'm going to invite Nora up here. As another volunteer, um, 
And so you can see that Nora represents, uh, no, no, it's, it's, the, it's the wrong way. You gotta turn your back. No, 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 no. Uh, here, just turn your back. There we go, there we go, boop, there we go. <laughs> so you can see that Nora represents one of these snake-bitten Israelites. That's why her stick figure is dying. I mean, look, he's in pretty bad shape. Uh, now, let's say that this cross here represents the bronze serpent on the pole. Let's say our processional cross represents that, okay? Watch what happens when Nora turns around and looks at it. What? Look, she comes to life. <laughs> and we're reappropriating the rainbow as a symbol of salvation, all right? Uh, now, watch what happens, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, sorry. Um, so we saw when Nora had her back to the pole, right? She was, she was dying, but when she looked to it, she was saved. And it's the same thing with the gospel. Before Jesus came, the human race was snake-bitten and dying in our sins. So Nora, turn back around. And God sent his son in the world, not to condemn the world, but to die on the cross for our sins, to provide healing, to provide the heavenly vaccination. So now, if we'll turn to Christ and believe, if we'll look upon the cross, and the cross, isn't it the same? It's, it's a symbol of our death and our judgment. Mysteriously speaking, there's something about looking to the cross of Christ that brings us salvation. All right, thank you, Nora. Let's have a hand for her. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm about to wrap up here, but it's as simple as that. Do you want to be saved from your sins? Do you want to have eternal life and go to heaven and be with Jesus when you die? Then you have to turn to Jesus. You have to turn to the cross and believe in him. Jesus said, that's why he came. We were snake bitten. We were diseased. He didn't come for no reason at all. He came because we needed him. So maybe there are some people here today. Maybe there are some kids. So kids, listen up to me. Every kid, look at me right now, okay? Look at me right now. And the adults, all right? Maybe some of you kids have never placed your faith in Jesus. Maybe some of you adults have never placed your faith in Jesus. And I want to give you a chance right now. Okay, so stay locked in. There's nothing more important that has ever been taught than what Jesus is teaching us in this passage. So in just a moment, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask everyone here to bow their heads so that no one's looking and close their eyes. And if you would like to be saved by Jesus, I'm going to ask you to do something brave, whether you're an adult or whether you're a child. I'm going to ask you to look up, look me in the eyes, and nod your head and be like, yeah, I want to be saved. I want to be saved from my sins. I want to go to heaven and be with Jesus forever. I want you to just look up and nod your head, and that's going to let me know that you want the gift of salvation. Now, I'm not going to embarrass you. Uh, I'll come to talk to you after service, okay? But don't let your fear or shame stop you. Don't let your fear or shame stop you. We've all been snake-bitten, right? Everyone, everyone in this room has the disease of sin, and we all need the cure. Now, some of you, adults and children, have never been baptized. And this will let me know, I want to turn to Jesus, 
I want to be baptized and be saved by his death on the cross. Maybe some of you have been baptized, adults and children, but you're not sure that you've ever really believed in Jesus, that you've ever really turned to him. And if that's you, I want you to also lift your head and give me a nod so that I can pray for you too, okay? This is the gospel, okay? This is the good news. It's the most important message in the history of the world on the lips of the most important figure in the history of the world. So don't miss your opportunity to be saved by Jesus Christ this morning, by putting your faith in him this morning. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. John Newton this slave ship captain experienced the salvation and transformation found in Jesus. Do you want to experience that for yourself in this life and in the age to come have eternal life? Let's pray. With every head bowed and every eye closed, we come before you this morning, Lord Jesus Christ, not because we think we're good, but because you invite us to come to you for living water. You invite us to look to you for light. And you say that anyone who looks to you will be saved. And so, Lord, I pray that those in here, children or adults, that don't know Jesus and therefore don't know the Father, that haven't turned to him, that haven't believed in him, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work even right now. And you would tell them, come to me. Lord Jesus, thank you that you're safe. You say, come to me, all you who are weary of carrying your heavy loads. So just with every head bowed and every eye closed, if you want to receive salvation from Jesus this morning, if you want to look to him and be saved, I just want you to lift your head up for a moment and look me in the eye and nod. Anyone else? If you want to be saved this morning, you can look to me and be nod. You can say, I want to be baptized. I want to follow Jesus. Many people nodding their heads this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. We thank you that all who turn to you, all who look to you will be saved. None will be turned away who come to the Lamb of God. We thank you that you are the light of the world. And we pray whether some of those who are looking to me this morning, who are looking at me, whether they're wanting to turn back to you or whether they're wanting to turn to you for the first time, that you would put your Holy Spirit in them, you would put your living water in them, that they would follow you all the days of their life and always have these refreshing waters. And Lord, we thank you that you've made a way for us to come. You've made extra rooms in heaven just for us. We bless you, Lord. Amen.
please take a few moments to meditate on the sermon and continue in prayer.